Listener Production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. One of my favourite ways to do that is by running live events, like our annual Leadership Summit. There's nothing quite like being in a room full of inspiring women, hearing their stories, and sharing leadership experience. Well, in this series, I'm bringing you the next best thing to being there in the room and sharing the highlights from our 2022 summit. What will your workplace look like five years from now? Before you answer that, think back five years to the workforce before COVID and how much has changed. It's a good reminder that we might not be able to predict everything, but what we can do is track which sectors are growing, what the overseas trends are in the job market, and what kinds of tech look particularly promising to try and get a glimpse into the future. In this session, you'll hear from a panel made up of the perfect people to discuss our workplace future. Nabila Ahmed, the Asia finance correspondent at Bloomberg, Fiona Simpson, the president of the National Farmers Federation, and Andrea Clark, founder of Future Fit Co. The panel is moderated by Chief Strategy Officer at CyberCX, Alastair McGibbon. Over to Alastair. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Andrea, let me start with the uh, light topic of um, what are the predicted job markets of the future? Oh, such, a, such an easy topic, isn't it? Um, so job sectors, so the, the fastest growing sectors in this country, as we know, are um, property, healthcare and management. And I think what's interesting about looking at the fastest growing sector is really bringing it back to the individual and thinking about where is my trajectory and what's going to be my role in the future of my own work? So I think the greatest question we can be asking ourselves is what does the future of my work look like? Am I in someone else's future of work or am I in a future of work that I'm really happy about? So I think we can't get away from the fact that regardless of what sectors are growing, because I think that's certainly going to be changing, it comes back to personal agency, the power of personal agency, because we all need to act as an effective agent for ourselves, for many of us for the first time in our whole careers, because we're in a far looser and less structured environment where we simply don't have that scaffolding that the workplace has provided for all of us for so many years. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what changes are coming our way, you know, what's going to drive those changes across the major sectors are technology, the talent that we can find, but also how fast the workforce is able to learn. So what's the learning pace of the people that we work with? Because that will have a huge impact on what the jobs of the future look like and what how sectors evolve. So cybersecurity, this is not mm. just about... Oh, yeah. That's true. It's, not, I it's it, not, yeah. not, the fastest, not one of the fastest growing sectors? Of course it is. And I think that if you're in tech, what's really interesting to me at the moment is taking a look at, when we look at our own individual learning plans, what is the sector we're in? If you have anything to do with tech, you need to be taking a micro course on cybersecurity. It doesn't matter where you are in the tech sector, looking at those meta trends and understanding what they are and how they're going to impact you should be a critical piece of your learning. What are the type of skills in that really fluid environment that you're describing of, of those jobs that are, that are emerging? What are the skills you think individuals will need? Well, the National Skills Commission has a recommendation of four skills that we need to look at, and they are 
communication, care, cognitive and computing. Uh, but I would also throw into that the amount of research coming out from Harvard around essentially the soft skills and how the extraordinary demand in the workforce for the moment for people who have good theory of mind skills. So people who can get along with other people, people who can appreciate the mindset of someone else, even if they don't agree with them. And think about it, if you're a CEO, you want to hire someone who's going to not just get along with everyone, but have the attitude and the aptitude to be trained up into something new. So we need to think about hiring for will over skill, because you can always teach someone Excel. You can always teach someone, you know, a, a technical skill. But it's the attitude and the dedication, the loyalty and the willingness to, you know, step into that growth mindset and take on something new if required that I think is important. It's interesting you talk about the will over skill bit because I find often in tech industries, they'll look for the skill bit and not the will. And I I worry that that actually will hold industries back. Nabila, You've been in New York seeing obviously some of the most successful or at least financially successful companies in the world. Are there learnings in in the States about how bosses are handling this shift? Absolutely. Look, the big sort of theme in the employment market in the US at the moment is talent retention. There is a huge battle going on to hire and retain good people, particularly on Wall Street, which has been an amazing beneficiary of the pandemic. It's spelled amazing boom times for all of the investment banks. They've raked in massive fees and that's required long extra hours from their bankers, particularly young grads. So you've seen over the past year, young grad salaries go up between 20 and 30% across the board. We haven't really seen that in Australia yet, and that hasn't filtered through here yet. It's not just about paying them better. It's also been a little bit about looking after their mental health and blocking out Saturdays, for example, and having things like, you know, they're getting free Peloton bikes. And one of the boutique investment banks has been offering all expense paid holidays for its staff up to $10,000. The problem is they don't really have the time to take that time (laughs) off to go on vacation. But these are some of the incentives being offered at the moment to try to really hire good people and keep them. Well, so that's purely for retention. Yes. And that's in the finance sector. When you looked across the rest of the US, did you see similar trends occurring? So tech is another area and they obviously are known for their perks. And, um, you know, there are things like for women, particularly paying for fertility treatments, paying for egg freezing. So a lot of the tech companies now do that just as a matter of course. And in America where maternity leave or parental leave isn't really mandated at all, that has also become a battleground. So companies are fighting over themselves to offer a better parental leave policy so they can retain young talent and young women as well as men. Wow. And do you put most of this down to the pandemic or are there other factors? A lot of it is down to the pandemic because that really put in focus sort of the amount of work required to keep going. And, you know, working from home for everyone has been a massive challenge. It's extra strain and extra workload on everyone, particularly people who are looking after kids at home as well or parents and have other caring caregiver duties too. So it's it's really brought into sharp focus some of the issues that people are already contending with. But now on the back of the pandemic, it's really led to a refocus from a lot of people on re-evaluation 
expectation on life and where do I want to be and do I want to be in the office 24 hours a day or do I do I just want to opt out? And you're seeing this great resignation trend across the US and in many parts of Asia as well, not so much in Australia yet, but people are just leaving and people who are being told that they have to be in the office a certain number of days are saying, I'd rather just not work or go to a different company because I can, and they can more easily switch sectors too. Amazing. Fiona, can I bring you into the conversation? And it's probably an obvious question for you. Environmental changes, how will they impact skills and work in the future, both in the sector that you're leading, but also more broadly in the economy? Yeah, look, hugely. And I was actually just listening and thinking, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're talking about tech, but when does is, is tech still tech when it's in agriculture, growing food and fibre, or is it tech? I mean, at the moment, agriculture has this amazing trajectory. We have $100 billion chartered for 2030, up from $60 billion in 2018, and now hitting $86 billion. So it's a really exciting industry to be in. And whilst agriculture never sounds very sexy, when you talk about food, the food you eat, the sheets you sleep in, the clothes you wear, um, you know, your shelter, that, that's the sort of thing we're talking about, the medications you take, that's what we do as farmers we grow that stuff and it's not just about farmers it's about the supply chain as well so as we're responding to some of the environmental pressures as we're very conscious of moving to a net zero economy um, and we you know as land managers at the farming end of the scale technology is absolutely critical now capturing that data understanding that data interpreting that data as to how we can actually do what we do which is continuing to grow food and fiber because we have a growing world we have a growing world population it's critical that we do but we have to also prove our sustainability. Agriculture has, over the years, absolutely punched above its weight. It's just been a consistent contributor to the GDP. Uh, We export 70% of what we grow, but we have to do it sustainably. And so now the jobs of the future in our industry are looking at the supply chain in terms of the technology around monitoring. So how do we actually capture the carbon data in our soil? At the moment, it's very expensive and quite difficult to do. How can we actually capture some of the nutrient information in the plants so that we're only feeding the plants what sort of nutrients they need, not you know anything extra? How can we then apply some traceability? We know that traceability of our product is really important to consumers. Consumers now want to be able to see where that product comes from and sometimes even go back to the farm that it comes from and and consumers in Australia as well as overseas. What sort of technology does that require if we're actually attaching some sort of traceability to all the products that we produce? And then, of course, in Australia, you know, if we look at the wider supply chain, what sort of technology can we actually apply now in Australia? We've seen in COVID how um, dependent we are on overseas countries for a lot of the inputs and a lot of our manufacturing goods. Um, We've seen huge delays with those. Can we not now use technology in some of our regional centres to grow those centres. Heaps of people now heading towards regional Australia and you can work from anywhere these days. You don't need to just be in the cities. So how can we use technology to actually influence that end of the supply chain as well? So all of that, of course, Alistair, is in, a, in an environment when we're heading towards net zero. So we have to be accounting for every bit that you know of emission that we have, every bit of carbon that we can capture all has to be accounted for. So huge challenges and exciting opportunities ahead, I think. Hi there, it's me again. I'm just checking back in to evaluate what kind of skills you're bringing into the workforce right now. Is it those technical skills Alistair was saying is so important in his field? Or maybe the softer skills that Andrea talks about, like working with others? 
Well, it could be a good time to see what's missing in your skill set and mark what you need to improve on. We've heard from our panel about the fastest growing sectors in the job market and some of the most sought after skills. Now, Nabila, Fiona and Andrea discuss why we're seeing a boom in the number of people with a side hustle. Back to Alastair. This is a general question for the panel. The number of Australians with sort of multiple, holding down multiple jobs these days is higher than ever before. What impact will that have on our future workforce? That's like everyone getting into their side hustle and really following their passions. And what you will see is, you know, more and more people following what they really want to do rather than getting stuck into these careers that you start at 21 and you stay in the same job for 40 odd years and then then you retire. That trend is really, really changing. And that's what you're going to see is that people have multiple careers over their lifetime. And that could be in different industries, that could be two or three careers. So things like upskilling and reskilling, you'll see more and more of. And, and that will, I mean, I, I think it's a great thing for those reasons, Nabila, as long as it's that people shed, they take on and then they shed as well. I mean, I think, you know, my generation tended to go with one career and stay in one career, whereas the next generation is coming along and being much more flexible and agile. I think it does change the way we learn. I'm not sure that now, you know, people want to line up for three and four and five years of learning necessarily. They want to be agile about what they learn and how that's going to influence their career choice. And so I think, yes, let's, let's, follow our passions. That's exactly what's led me to be where I am now, is just making sure that I can um, follow my passions. And if that means, you know, taking on several different jobs, great. But but don't just pile everything on and say, yes, 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 all the time and take more and more and more on and then realise that in actual fact, you, you haven't got any time to actually talk to the kids or or, or to be, be yourself or to do some learning or to be fit or whatever it is you need to do. So that's the challenge. I think the huge upside to everyone having this collective realisation that they want to be more connected to their communities and to the work that they're doing is this complete reassessment of, um, yeah, should we take on our side hustle? Should we make that something full-time? And in this mix, you know, I certainly want everyone to think about the role of learning in that because, you know, a business cannot transform unless its people are transforming. And I would urge everyone to think really seriously about their own continuous learning plan for the year. And I would urge everyone to think about, this is really ambitious, but I really want you to consider if by the end of this year, you can dedicate one day a week to learning. I know that everyone's like, yeah, right. Good on you. The eighth Um, day. Yeah. The eighth day. Yeah. Just do the eighth day. But imagine, but you know, imagine the disproportionate innovation that you would get out of your team if you allowed them to take one day a week to read, to reflect, to listen, to get market intel about what's going on. Imagine the payoff to that you know, in in 12 months' time. Think about how you can build that into your own schedule. I was just sharing with the panel earlier that I've experimented with that the last couple of months. I've blocked every Wednesday for learning. I did an MIT program on economics that I failed. That's not the point. I'm going to do it again. Even online? Online, yeah, it was online. I'm going to do it again. You could fail something online. You actually can. I know, it's remarkable, yeah. (laughs) You're too honest. I too was shocked, yeah. Try to stagger it, but see if you can, by the end of the year, get to a point where you really truly have learning embedded in your schedule because the remarkable growth that comes from that will take you forward, will get you 
networking with new people who you wouldn't otherwise, um, you know, previously meet. And I feel like there's so much opportunity and learning and that ties straight into upskilling and reskilling and everyone taking it a bit more seriously. Can I just pick up on that really interesting point that Nabila raised about um, the great resignation and what businesses are doing? I know women who are being offered personal concierges for 30 hours a month to help them out with homeschooling. I know women who are getting $100,000 bonuses at organisations that have, I know, few few years went up, that businesses that have never given sign-on bonuses are doing that to keep talent. I think this is a very short-term game that we're playing. And I think that business needs to really recognise their own role in upskilling and reskilling, not just internal staff, but also the communities that they're a part of. I think that if we are going to be transitioning from any segment of the population from manual labour to knowledge work, then we cannot expect universities to pick up a slap and train millions of people. We can only do it at scale using high impact digital programs. So I think that if business spent money on creating a micro university or some type of skilling initiative that lifted the community and understood how to retrain a 45 year old bloke in Wagga, as well as a 45 year old bloke in Rose Bay, we all need to be lifted in the next 10 years. So I wonder what role business can play in modernising the workforce and not leaving anyone behind. Nabila, Fiona, are you contemplating taking an MIT economics course anytime soon or anything else, upskilling? I need to upskill my swaddling game. I'm so bad <laughs> yeah, at well, it. <laughs> you have a leave pass for a little while. I'm, I'm not economics for me, no. Um, but in actual fact, so I've actually dedicated myself to going. So I'm a member of the AICD and I sit on a number of boards. And so I've actually tried to set a bit of a challenge for myself where I actually do some of their units of learning and I try and regularly tick them off. Now, I haven't actually got them embedded in my calendar yet, but I certainly have friends that have. And I think it's made a difference. It's just made a huge difference to my mind space and to their mind space. So economics is not for me, but I do think that I, so many people now are picking up the, this agile learning where you pick up a unit, if, you, if you're taking on a couple of different roles or you're interested in going to different roles, then people are learning as they need to learn. And those units are now available online. They're available in ones and twos. You can do a bit of learning here or there. And that can, if you're thinking of going to that next role or job or, or extra job, or putting your resume together can actually add a lot. And networking is part of that too. You know, making sure that you know the right people in the industry that you're trying to get into or that you're trying to get ahead in. Because one of the things I really hear from business leaders is that it's very hard to find the right people for the right jobs. Often they're using AI programs now to go through CVs. And I was talking to someone in the engineering industry who was saying all of the CVs that he's getting look exactly the same because they've all gone through a program by the HR team and it's very hard to differentiate between people. You know, some of the leaders, the leaders who are really good are actually trying to do that work themselves personally by trawling through LinkedIn or what have you. So networking is a very key part of that upskilling too, I would say. I'll just throw something into the mix there. I had a head of HR of a um, very large bank say to me last week that when she now is looking for talent, she's looking at their learning background. And if they haven't picked up any skills in the last couple of years, she'll move on to someone else. So having a BA or a master's 15 years ago is not cutting it. She's looking for people who are dedicated to lifelong learning and building a culture of lifelong learning within their team. So I thought that was an interesting, interesting way that she was actually dismissing people as candidates for roles. Great. And perhaps a good way to end. The lesson I've learned from this is all of us should do micro-credentials because the world is moving fast. 
And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. 